0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food.
2: Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, where a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And Bartolomeo Scappi may not be a name that everyone recognizes, unless you delve into ancient cookbooks regularly or history of a particular period. But my guess is that everyone is familiar with names like Medici or Borgia, or the Vatican and the popes and the workings. Of, well, so many popular authors have helped out with that. Dan Brown, for one, in particular. But today, I have author Crystal King with me. And Crystal King's newest historical novel, The Chef's Secret, is a fictional story based on a true character. Bartolomeo Scappi, who served as the Vatican chef during the 16th century Italian Renaissance, is... Someone with a lot of legacy, culinary legacy, but little known about his life. From Scappi's original cookbooks and her extensive research on the popes and the cardinals for whom he worked, Crystal recreates and fabricates the life of this first celebrity chef. As one reviewer wrote, it's not meant as a scholarly novel. But it merits recognition for historical details on the Vatican and its occupants, and also the architectural details of Roman estates, and of course, from my perspective, descriptions of Scappi's recipes and dishes. Crystal is also the author, her previous book was Feast of Sorrow, about the chef, uh, the ancient chef Apicius, who is. Supposedly the author of the very first cookbook that we know. Crystal is an author, a culinary enthusiast, and a marketing expert. Her writing is fueled by a love of history and a passion for food, language, and culture of Italy. She's taught classes in writing creativity and social media at both the Harvard Extension School, Boston University, oh, and also the Massachusetts College of Art, UMass, Boston, oh, come on, and Grub Street. (laughs) (laughs) She is, as I mentioned, the author of Feast and Sorrow. And this is her latest book that just came out this month. It's called The Chef's Secret. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you for having me. This is, uh, this book was not something, well, first of all, not something that I ordinarily entertain on this show, being a work of fiction, but I could not resist, as I as I spoke with you earlier um, before we started, that because it is so filled with history, it's so filled with historical, real historical characters, that it was very entertaining to read and see what you've done with it. Why? What inspired you to write a novel, first of all, about... Apicius, the ancient Rome and period, and now Renaissance Italy. What, what threw you into that? Were you interested in food and history beforehand, or?
4: Well, I was interested in food. I've always been interested in food history, and I read a lot of memoirs, or not memoirs, but a lot of. uh, non-fiction, um, have always been interested in like the works of MFK Fisher and just I, I've always loved food writing. And I decided I was going to write a celebrity chef novel, a modern novel. And I, it was about a, a set of magical knives that traveled through history. And I needed an origin story for these knives. And so I was reading a book by Roy Strong called Feast. And it's all about feasts and banquets. And there was a line in there about how Apicius died. And I thought, okay, that's crazy. I am going to write a scene <laughs> with him purchasing these knives um, before he dies and gifting them to a chef. And that's where this origin story would start. And that scene is still in Feast of Sorrow. But when I wrote it, I realized this is so much more interesting and so much more fascinating. And I devoted like the whole next year just reading everything I could, talking to historians, going to Italy, and just trying to really wrap my head around uh, the culture of food in ancient Rome. And so that's how I started. But while I was reading and researching all of this and starting to write the book, Bartolomeo Scappi's name kept coming up over and over because we know so little about Apicius that most of uh, the research paired him amongst all sorts of other Italian culinary
3: uh, heroes, basically. Okay, but I'm going to stop because yeah. you've, you've now tempted our listeners. <laughs> you have to tell the story of how Apicius died. Yeah. Uh, The the abbreviated version. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm totally
4: spoiling the end of my first book,
3: Oh, but you can research. Historians know what it is anyway. You can Wikipedia it in two seconds,
4: but um, uh, it's really interesting. He was um, the richest man in Rome, or probably one of the richest men. Uh, He had a a great inheritance, and uh, he basically... um, Want, he's traveled the world looking for the most luxurious ingredients for his banquets and his feasts. Um, he was somebody that um, really, uh, the cookbook that bears his name has a couple recipes that um, are attributed to him. So we believe that he was very interested in um, the foods of his kitchen. And there are some rumors that he had a cooking school at one point. And so he was, he was just extraordinarily interested in food. Uh, But there's a lot of honor in all of Italian history. And at one point in his life, he had squandered so much money that um, he became very concerned about this. and But we're talking squandering money. He still had like millions and millions of the equivalent of what we would have today. Not enough to support his next feast, but... <laughs> well, maybe the next 10 feasts. But after that, he was probably not sure what to do. Um, so he decided he was going to throw the biggest feast that Rome had ever seen. Um, and at the last minute, he barred the doors. And he ate what he could. And he poisoned himself on his best wine. And I thought, that is so crazy. I want to know what who this person was and how he got to that point and so that's what that first book is about is, is the, his life and as I imagine it and based on a few th- key things that we do know about him and um yeah, that's how it, how it all came about.
3: So then you continued on the journey and ventured into the Renaissance. Yes.
4: Yeah, so uh, Bartolomeo Scappi's name kept coming up in all the research, and I bought the cookbook. It's um, The English translation is by Terence Scully, uh, and it is this weighty tome, at least the translation is. I've seen the original yeah. as well. I know that you recently saw it. And it's much smaller than the translation, of course, because
3: the translation is all this really great information. And it's very. The translation is, is very readable. Yes, I mean I have a copy as well, and it's and he uh, Scully does an, a terrific job in kind of giving the whole background and letting you know what these recipes are for and what about. I mean, that's Yeah, wonderful. just incredible information. That's So when I started
4: reading this cookbook, I've read the whole thing back and forth many, many times <laughs> at sure. this point. Um, but that's what I really loved about it, is that you can glean so much about Scopi and what he cared about by reading this cookbook. And so that was something that I was really interested in exploring a lot more. And I... Um, just really decided I have to do more with this this man and and write something about him. But we know very little about him. Mm -hmm. Um, We know about the cookbook. We know some places that he lived um, because he references certain foods in the cookbook, so it's clear that he was very familiar with these places. We know who he worked for, um, and he worked for several different cardinals and popes. Um, He lived at least, he was born in Dumenza on the Italian-Swiss border. And he lived in Milan and in Venice and Bologna um, and Ravenna. And then he settled in Rome, where he worked for several cardinals and popes until he
3: died. Right. And I was thinking about that, about the fact that he was born so far north. And I'm saying, OK, so then he ended up in the Vatican. But then that's not unusual because these, the cardinals, the popes, they were all members of Royal families—they're all members of very wealthy Mm -hmm. families, so they had homes everywhere. Yes, and they and they came from all over the different well duchies because Italy was not even a place at that time. Right, it wasn't unified, so it makes all the sense in the world to me that you know that he would end there. I guess,
4: yeah, especially if he was really coming for up in his career. There was you know the only place he could really go would be to work for the Pope. Right, and he was called. He was called a Cuoco Segreto, and that means secret chef. And um, But what it actually means is that he was the private chef to the
3: pope. So not unlike our presidents in the White House, the mm-hmm. popes brought their own chefs with them. But he worked through... Um a couple, he? he? did. He started working
4: for cardinals. Um, and he worked for Cardinal Campeggio was probably the one that we're most familiar with. If you've ever watched the Tudors, he was the mm. um, the cardinal uh, protector for England. And he failed to prevent the divorce of Henry VIII. And so um, that was his legacy. But he was somebody that uh, Scoppy worked for. And he prepared a banquet for Charles V when he worked for Um, Cardinal Campeggio there were a couple more cardinals he worked for and then he ended up working for Pope Pius IV, Pope Pius V and then uh, the Pope Gregory I think the 13th I get the there are so many Gregories I I tend to forget which one Uh, but by the time he got to that point he was not in the height of his career anymore. He was making very simple foods because those popes were not the luxury-loving popes that the Borgias and uh, the and Pope Julius in particular was a very um, luxury-loving pope and squandered the treasury of the Vatican on banquets and, and all sorts of um, tawdry things. Um, but these popes were very, very pious and, and believed in eating simply.
3: Right, and well, so, and they uh, were, and um, often they were elderly, too. Yes. So they would have, you know, their diets would be a little scaled back. But earlier on in his career, he certainly, with the cardinals, especially mm-hmm. if he wanted to impress everybody, right, he would have come in contact with, you know, the, the movers and shakers of the time, the glitterati, as we would call them today, yes. you know, the, the star, star power. So e- even though we don't know, and he may not have had a relationship with them or talked to them, he would have been in some contact with them.
4: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the banquets that he created uh, must have given him incredible networking power because people were so impressed by them that they wanted him to cook for
3: them as well. Well, now let's go into your book. (laughs) You have created... Such a story! It, it's it's great. It's great fun to read. And who knows? You know, there may be some people squirming in their graves. There may, you may have <laughs> you may have really um, thought you fabricated tall tales, but they may in fact have been uh, actually happening. I'm sure. Who? So he. You talk about Scopy. I mean, that you talk about his life when you get into it. But you start out and you create this. Not create. There is a character Giovanni. Okay, but that becomes sort of our main character. Mm -hmm. Who was Giovanni? So he was the... I mean, in real life.
4: Yes. (laughs) He was the nephew to Bartolomeo, and he was somebody that um, Bartolomeo dedicated the cookbook to. Um, he dedicated the cookbook to two people, um, both of whom are in the novel. One is Giovanni, um, and who was his apprentice, as well as his nephew. And then Francesco Rionoso, who was the steward, um, the scalco. And those two people are... are two of the, the main people that he dedicates the cookbook to. And Giovanni and um, Francesco Rionoso worked together um, in the household um, for the, for Pope Pius before he became Pope, for Pope Pius the f- um, fourth. And so, but the, he, they came to work for Scappi when Scappi was um, in the papal household. They all be, they all worked together. And, it, the book begins, and Scapi has died, and Giovanni is mourning him. And in that, in this scene, I'm not giving too much away because you find all this out in the first chapter, <laughs> and, and within a few pages. first couple pages, yes. right? <laughs> and uh, Giovanni's given the keys to a strong box that uh, from Francesco, who, um, and uh, Francesco gives him these keys and says that your uncle asked you to burn the contents of this, um, of, of what's in there. So of course Giovanni goes to find out what's in the strong box. He discovers that there's these letters and journals, uh, mostly written in code, uh, that describe a 50-year love affair with a noble woman. Okay.
3: Now remember, this is all fiction. Yes, <laughs> that part's fiction. But Giovanni was a real he was person, real, right? Yes, and he much, you know, and, and um, Scappi felt, you know, very. Um, I guess responsible towards him uh, would be the word. Had a lot of affection for him. He was his apprentice and his nephew.
2: He Um, actually
3: says in the cookbook, "The um, I did not
4: make this up." That he, um, but I included in the in the book the actual words uh, that he looks to him like a son. son. He Mm -hmm. believed, and that's actually um, say no more. Yeah, so. But I liked the idea that Scoppy had this kind of affection, that he thought of him in such a close way. And we don't believe that Scoppy was married, because we know we have his will, and we know that he left a little bit of money to his sister, Katarina. Um We know that he had, um, she had two sons, Giovanni and um, Cesare, and... But there's no mention of any woman in Scoppy's life, and I was really interested in in that. And of course, he probably was a workaholic. Yeah. Uh, but I liked the idea of what if there was a woman in his
3: life? What if it was a woman that maybe he wasn't supposed to be with? And so that's where that. all That's came what from. reminded me of the stories of the Borges and yes. you know, Dan Brown's novels of you know the workings of the yes. Vatican, right? Um, it, but it is. It does. It's. It's got. Everything in it, folks. <laughs> you've you've managed to create uh, sort of like this modern tale set in this in this um, Renaissance period. It's it's fascinating. It's it's fun. It's a fun read, I have to say. And you know, the benefit is you learn a little something on the side. I hope so. Yeah. Um, in the book, you have incorporated um, a lot of other true historical figures, real life historical figures of the period who you've, they didn't all come together in real life, right, necessarily, but you put them in there and gave them other tasks and roles. Um, Tell us about some of these other people who you who you write about. So I write about people that
4: um, some of you may be familiar with Michelangelo is probably the most famous person. I have him doing something really interesting with food um, that uh, I had a great time with, um, something related to sugar sculptures, and I also wrote about um, Benvenuto Cellini, who was a goldsmith um, for the Pope, and his autobiography is one of my favorite
3: books. Yeah, you know, I've heard you mention that before, it's and it's like fascinating. That he was, I mean, it, over the top. Well, we and we know we know so much about the culture of the Renaissance through mm-hmm. a lot of Cellini's sculptures. And also from his
4: biograph- autobiography because he talks a lot about um, his life as an artist and the, and of course he exaggerates a lot in this book. He single-handedly saved this, um, the city of Rome in the sack of 1527 according to him. Yeah. So We have to take a lot of what he says with a grain of salt but there's a lot of really interesting things you can read between the lines yeah. with. So when play, he's waiting
3: around for some some well, it, always in the church because that's who always gave money for the art. But as he would sit around waiting for somebody to finance his next yes. project, I mean,
4: or sometimes he was in jail because he like <laughs> did things he should not have done, um, like murder. And um, but then the the popes or the cardinals or somebody would forgive him because they wanted him to make uh, something else out of gold for them. Yeah. <laughs> so he was fun to to work in there. And then um, probably the most, um, from a food perspective, uh, I play a bit with Domenico Romoli, who I make into a villain in this book. And pretty much nothing in that book about Domenico is probably true. But he was somebody who was a steward for the Medici. And he wrote a book called La Singular Dottrina. um, And it was a manual of how to run a, a noble household. And there were re- some recipes in there, but it was a little bit more about uh, making sure that you were, the, you were really taking care of the lord of the house. And so that some of the things were a little bit more medicinal. But he called himself panunto, which is um, an oiled bread right. recipe, right? <laughs> so he thought very highly of this recipe that he had. And his cookbook or his his manual came out in 1560, which was 10 years before the Scoppy cookbook was published. And so I thought th- there's no evidence that they know each other or I mean, knew each other at that time. But I thought it was they had to have at least known of each other. And but what if there was a little bit more there? Uh, I I have known a lot of cooks and people in in the food world, and there's a serious competition between them and so
3: (laughs) camaraderie but it's always there's looking over the shoulder (laughs) yeah
4: (laughs) and i thought this is would be interesting what if there was some sort of weird rivalry and what would that look like and so i have a a lot of fun with him um but we really know barely anything about him beyond uh the the book that he left behind and Mm -hmm. then who he worked for Mm
3: -hmm. And then you kind of tell some tales on the popes, which in today's news is old <laughs> news, but but you do tell some, you know, some fabricated stories about that. I mean, it's all yes. fits together. Very nice. One
4: of the popes, um, Pope Marcellus II, um, I think that's the second, he only lived for like two months. And I thought, okay. Only, he was
3: only a pope for two months. Yeah, Correct. Right. Right.
4: Well, right, right. He lived longer than that, of course. But <laughs> he um, was... As he died two months after he came into office, and I thought that's too fun. I have to f- yeah. figure out what to do
3: with that. So you gave us a reason why, mm-hmm. <laughs> a good one. Um, while you were researching all this fun, the research, fun, 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 yeah, and getting your hands on on Scopy's um, um, a copy, one of the original copies of his works. Well, there were two books. The first, the second one was a widely, um, yeah. There were a couple widely, editions. Yeah. Yes. Um, in fact, I mean, I was amazed of, to read, I think Scully has this in his book, that there were eight separate printings of, mm-hmm. of Bartolomeo Scopi's opera, which for that day and age, I mean, to get, a, to get in print, period, was a big thing. But to have eight printings by the time, yeah. um, long after he died, by 1696 there had already been eight printings.
4: I mean, it is, it's still the most... Um, Celebrated cookbook, actually. I mean, you can I I challenge you to name another book that has had that many printings over the t- period of time that it has, it existed. You're right. In and the, now, his, one yeah. of his
3: colleagues, um, uh, Banchetti, Di okay. Mezibuco. Yes. Um, he had more, but you know, but <laughs> pretty neck and neck. But I I th- mean,
4: th- yeah, but I think that the, but the impact. You're right. You're, but you're right. Is yes. much different. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, you think about it. You know, there weren't shelves and shelves of of books being printed. There, you know.
4: And this was also the first like cookbook as we know it. That I think that's where the differentiator yeah. comes. This is the first book that it only had recipes from Scoppy. It wasn't a book that um, just shared recipes that other people knew about. Um, it was the first uh, cookbook that had... Uh, any sort of illustrations in it. There's all these beautiful woodcuts in there. All right? And so those two things make it... And also, it's one of the first books that had really precise measurements in some cases. And a lot of cases, there isn't. There's some... They assume that as a cook, you might know how to measure certain things or how to gauge cooking time. But it was the first real book that had most of the recipes have some indication on how you can make it. And so you or I could pick up
3: this book if you... And, and make something. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that was, I guess, what I, what I wanted to say about Scully's translation is that he didn't really change, you know, he didn't change the recipes. I mean, they are workable. Mm-hmm. They're very, you know, and, and even though there were other household management books written, as you already referred to, the woodcuts, as you described, I mean, people can still look to those and see, oh, so that's a good arrangement of a working kitchen yes working kitchen with a staff of about you know 10 people but yes <laughs> but still yeah, yeah yeah that was that was I thought just fascinating uh, I want to talk to you more about your encounters in the research but we have to take a short break so keep that in mind and we'll be right back <laughs>
1: This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus dating back to 1910 and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get, and I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands, too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Crystal King. Crystal's the author of her newest book, um, "Chef's The Chef's Secret, and she's also the author of Feast and Sorrow, both historically-based novels that have been fictionalized and full of fun characters and fun activities. And Crystal, I wanted to ask you, when you were doing the research and you, and you decided you were going to, um, as you have done with the previous book, you were going to make up your own lives for the miss all these missing pieces. Um, in bringing life to, in bringing history to life, how careful were you, or did you feel this obligation to be careful with the facts?
4: Well, I think I I feel an incredible debt to history myself and I, as somebody who loves to read about it and and learn more about the world through history um, but when I was starting to do the research for both Apicius and for Scopi, there was uh, only a few things that we know about those people, so to write a history on those individuals is very, very difficult because we just don't have the information about them we can write about the body of work that they left behind, but about their lives There just isn't anything. And so I look at it like... I'm connecting the dots between what we know and giving people an idea of what could have been. And so I try to stay true to what we do know about those individuals and who was in their lives that we're aware of and the history of the time. So I want to give the reader a sense of the places that they lived and the you know what their world might have been like and the food that they would have eaten and I, that is where I feel like my loyalty lies. I want to give you, uh, the reader, a sense of what it would have been like to step into that world. I do feel an obligation to tell the reader where I take those liberties. Mm-hmm. And I leave a pretty extensive author's note in the back of both novels to say, hey, I I, I played with this one a little bit. Uh, and there's a lot of really fascinating facts that I, I just wish that I could... Um, Share with everyone, and I can't always like uh, put everything into the book, unfortunately. But what I do choose to put in there, I try to make sure that I'm as true to what we know about those people as possible.
3: Yeah. Now, your author's notes, I commend you on those. That you really, you kind of give a little mini history of that period, and mean and and the people surrounding uh, Scoppy in that in those notes, and it makes things clearer, I think, for the reader. You say that you want to make them feel the time and the place a lot, which I have to say there is this aura when when in reading the book, you do give an an aura of the. Interiors and the exteriors and the walking from place to place it, and it does it works. I mean, I, I, you did a, you did one wonderful job in doing that. Thank you. And you did travel to Italy. Yes. Well, why not write a book where you have to travel to Italy, right? <laughs> I didn't actually travel to Italy
4: until I was almost done with Feast of Sorrow. That was right. the the um, the first. But since then, I've gone almost every uh, year, if not twice a year, for the better part of a decade. And uh, that was simply because when at that part of my, point in my life, I couldn't afford to travel. I didn't grow sure. up with money and never had really ever gone beyond the borders of the, uh, the U.S. And so when I finally reached Rome, I thought, I, I was just, from the moment I set foot in that city, I thought this is where I belong. I've never felt that way about any place I've ever been. You know, but walking in the footsteps of my characters has just been not only an incredibly important experience for me, but to give more life to the book. Uh, but it's it. I feel like I'm experiencing a little bit about what they might have experienced. Because so much of Italy still exists in similar ways that it might have then um, of course we, it's modernized in a million different ways but you can still see so many things that existed in the time frames that those characters lived right. and that makes a big difference.
3: Well in particular your writings about the Vatican you you did have a, a tour guide that took you around so you could mm-hmm. see some of the inner workings. Tell me about that a little bit.
4: Yeah so I, um, I actually met with a woman who um, took us through the gardens um, I um, had had, somebody had given me some really good advice that the tour guides actually probably know better about the building and the architecture and and the history than maybe some of the people that actually work and live there today and so uh I um this woman was wonderful she she Basically give us a whole tour of the gardens, but also talked about the fact that like, the kitchens would have been outside of the Vatican. It would have been on a building potentially um, outside because you wouldn't have wanted the the cooking smells or the uh, the, the fires to be connected to the main building. Um, so there was all sorts of really interesting like tidbits about the Vatican itself. That I wouldn't have been able to understand, and I could ask her questions about, um, for example, the Borgia rooms which had been sealed. Um, they, I think, they were only unsealed in the late 1800s. They were sealed from the moment that he died all the way up until that time frame, and that, that was an interesting thing that I thought I could play with. So, yeah, definitely. So, talking to real people and, and historians and guides, um, it really helps me to get some ideas on other types of facts that I can weave into the story to make it
3: more holistic. Yeah, you know that that as I said that aura is pervasive throughout uh, your novel. But getting back to the research with with Scopy's book, but also the food. You have a lot of food in the book. His his work with feasts and and dishes that were that he made. Um, describe some of those those dishes, um, and were they made from Scopy's? Uh, recipes and how did you how did you work that in so the all the food
4: that I talk about in the book is in the Scoppy cookbook in some way or another and there so the cookbook is set out so that there's I think there's six books in total and there's books for one of the books is just about meat, for example. Another book is, um, and I say books, they're really chapters. Chapters, right? Um, one of them is all all about lean dishes, because you're working for the papacy, uh, and so there was all of these um, what they call feast days, and these feast days didn't necessarily mean literal feast. It was actually when you abstained from eating meat, and uh, and in this period of time, they started to allow dairy, so butter and eggs were okay, um, but you couldn't have, uh, you know, a side of beef <laughs> for dinner, right? So there was there's a huge volume that's just on fish dishes. Every kind of fish you can possibly imagine. It's really nuts how many different kinds of fish he mentions. Um, then there's uh, books. Um, there's a couple of sections for um, pastries. Um, there's a section for menus
3: for banquets. Um, one for all dishes for the sick. For example, entire, I mean, I saw an entire chapter devoted to menus for the sick, for the ill, or the convalescents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so which you incorporated as well. And in in yeah, so the I book. tried
4: to incorporate dishes from all of the books um, and some of the feasts that he mentioned as well. And the, some of the food is is very familiar to us. Um, like there's a there's tortellini and tortelloni which you know that's it was starting to become popular then so there's recipes for that there's all sorts of meat dishes that would seem very familiar to us or would we wouldn't think twice if uh, if somebody served it to us in a restaurant uh, there's, uh, all sorts of, like the fish dishes are very simple in a lot of cases. This wasn't necessarily super elaborate food in the number of ingredients that were in them. And all, and there's many dishes that are super simple. Um, and it's just roasting and then, uh, creating a sauce for it. But the spices is where things get a little fun. Uh, yeah, the, tell us about, about the prevalence of a couple things in particular. So they loved, um, well, they were. This was an era where the idea of the four humors was not as important. It was still important. So trying to balance um, the types of medicinal temperaments that a person might have or a, a temperament that a person might have with the food to make them healthier and so i i'm not an expert in this particular area it's a very com- the medicine of the renaissance is very complex um and i don't know how they kept it straight <laughs> <laughs> and much less us figuring it out ourselves but um but for, as an example um we have um pork today or ham and we would put a mustard sauce on it that's a very traditional way to have it but that was because pork was moist and cold and a mustard was hot and dry in their idea of the temperaments of the foods and so you would pair those things together to create a balance and so that was not as prevalent in scopi he wasn't as concerned about that until you get to the dishes of the sick and then you can see some more of that corresponding Uh, But the flavors that were really prevalent were the spices because originally these spices helped to balance out those flavors. But there was coriander and cloves and nutmeg and cinnamon, and uh, rosewater were
3: the the most common. Uh, yeah, rosewater, I and I had forgotten how much rosewater was really used in yes. that period. I mean, don't forget we're still you know the, this the spice route is growing and growing, and the trade routes, the trade in those. and really Venice developing. had so much
4: spice flowing through it, so it, right. which flowed throughout the rest of the Italian city states. And so it was, it was really interesting how they used all those flavors because they, they, they use them in all, like I think there's you know 600 dishes with cinnamon in it, for example, um, out of the 1,000 recipes. And you, those flavors are great in a lot of things that we eat today, but they're really weird in a dish like fried chicken. There's a fried chicken recipe that's pretty much exactly how we make fried chicken. You dredge it in f- flour and you fry it up, but you brine it First in vinegar and coriander and cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg, <laughs> and we think we know what fried chickens taste like. So when you have this fried chicken, you're like, "Wait, this is so strange." Um, so there's some weirdness there. Yeah, sounds good to me. That depth of depth of flavor. It it's really fun just, to experiment yeah, with yeah. that. But they also loved sugar. Sugar was in, I think, 900 of the thousand dishes. Uh, it's in everything. There's a fried egg recipe that you make the fried egg, but then you put orange juice and sugar on
3: top <laughs> of it. And this is more of a sugar in its raw state. This was not refined sugar. Correct. The they rooms. didn't
4: really have white sugar. Uh, you could I think you could get it in this time frame, but it wasn't easy to acquire. It was really in the, the century afterwards that white sugar became more prominent. So they would create sugar sculptures, um, elaborate sugar sculptures. You could go to a banquet, and there'd be a table with a whole city that's made out of sugar. Um, Scopy has actual descriptions of statues in the cookbook. Things like uh, a unicorn with its mouth in, uh, or a unicorn with its horn in the mouth of a lion, or Hercules holding apart the, the jaws of a tiger. You know, <laughs> so he, these incredible sugar sculptures. But they would have been probably brown sugar, and they would have been painted. And that's, I think, the difference. They would have had a vegetable diet. And you wouldn't have eaten them. They would have been hard as rocks. But they were definitely for display. And to show you how much wealth that they had, they mm-hmm. could acquire the sugar. The peasants would not have been
3: able to. Wow. And it's And it's as you say, it's interesting how much of our common food, or not common, but foods that we can find on menus or cook at home that are really traceable to Scoppy and his recipes. Oh, and definitely. Just, yes. You know, There's a turkey
4: mentioned? pot pie in there. And actually, turkey is an interesting thing, too, in that this, this is the first um, time that we start to see European recipes for turkey. They were coming over from the New World from Spanish and Italian explorers. And originally, turkeys were given um, as gifts by other nobles to one another because they thought they were beautiful birds. Hmm. But by the time Scopy got a hold of these birds, he decided they were delicious. And so mm-hmm. we have some of the first recipes for turkey in the cookbook. Yeah. And not quite as tough
3: as the swans. No. So. <laughs> Uh, historic Italian cookbooks I mean they really they do that is a traceable legacy that that they leave and and Scappi's book among them specifically Uh, how well we just talked about the recipes that have endured but how or why do you feel they've stood the test of time I think because a lot of the most of the
4: ingredients are fairly accessible mm. they're not um there's certainly some parts of the some of these recipes we wouldn't eat today we don't necessarily eat all the parts of the animals in at least in the U.S. um not usually you're not going to have you know a layered um dish of meat and pasta that has one layer of calves eyeballs in it you know like we don't eat that yeah. but we do eat um you know some of these these uh, most of the ingredients are extremely familiar to us. It's very different than the foods of ancient Rome, where uh, when I was talking about my first book, I had to really explain all of the ingredients. Everybody knows the spices that we're talking about. You understand the animals that I'm talking about. Uh, and and the cookbook, as I said, it's super recognizable. Um, but there's lots of dishes that we know today because that definitely had some of their roots there and that you can eat almost in a, a very similar form. If you go to parts of Italy, uh, there's like I said, the tortellini and the tortelloni there's um pastries in there. There's um, ciambele, which is a, what is really essentially the precursor to the bagel um, it's a, um, a bread made in the shape of a ring and you boil it and then you bake it <laughs> and so there's a lot of um, I, I think that there's just so much familiarity in these dishes and that they've stood the test of time
3: yeah um, when you mentioned the capon broth in the book um, and that was a dish for the ill for yes. the you know, but the but it was more of a, a, a reduction I guess of the capon and I just all I could think about is the most marvelous capon broth I've ever had in the world and it was in northern Italy Mm -hmm. and I thought oh that's you know things that have that are still around he gave he he was unlike um, I think any I mean certainly there were books written and and guides for cooking and recipes but his instructions Scappi's instructions were such that I mean he he gave he put it in the lap of 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 the cook, of the person who was making the recipe, which was kind of unheard of um, at that time. You would say, you know, do this or that, but depending on the judgment of the person making them or according to the cook's judgment and intention, totally, totally the opposite of, of, you know, instead of this didactic formula that one was to follow, you know, first, second, and third. And I think that is... Something which now we're seeing a lot more of in modern day cookbooks. Um, you know, well, if you don't have this ingredient, try substituting it with that. Correct. I mean, he yeah. really, he really had a feel for people and eating, and um, and he also and the use of the food.
4: I think his um, knowledge of the foods that were available in the various regions and what you could acquire in what season, he's very prescriptive in the sense that he can say, "These cherries are better in this um, from this city than from another," right, um, right. and I think that's where he's sort of saying your judgment comes in. You might want to make a cherry dish without. But you don't have those journeys. You, don't, you so. don't have to
3: travel you know across Correct. the country. Right. And
4: so um, but he's he's very knowledgeable about all of the different regions and the foods that are available and the seasons in which they're available. And he tells Giovanni in the cookbook that it is your responsibility to know all of these things so that you can make those kinds of decisions on your own.
3: Yeah, that was. I mean, you know how prescient. Look, and or we're, we're we're going back because look at today and you know, our quest for the best ingredients and where they mm-hmm. come from. Yeah. You know. Okay, now we have to end with something magnificent, all right? Because he truly was a magnificent person, he and was. the whole period of 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 that of history was pretty magnificent. What's all this talk about the Great Comet?
4: Oh, the comment was like one of my favorite things in the book, and it really has nothing to do with food, but it is. So I, in my research, when I'm when I'm writing, I pretty much I I map out everything that's happening in the world at that time. I map out what's happening in the world of art, what's happening in the Italian families, what's happening in politics and the papacy and just general scientific discoveries and one of them was in 1577 there was a great comet many people are familiar there's a musical it's the the great comet of 1812 i think is, something like that yeah. so there's a there's a musical about it and um, but there was several great comets but this particular one was um 1577 it appeared in November of that year and it lasted until the end of January and I thought, that's crazy. You could see the comet all day. And there were countless paintings, and um, there's there's works of literature and art that talk about this comet. And I was fascinated with the idea of, well, what the, what would it have been like to have see this comet above your head every day when things are happening? And so I had to include it. I do play with the dates a little bit. I move it further into April of 1577. And I actually use that as a frame for the book, because um, Scoppy's lover in the book is a woman named Stella and you discover her um, when Scoppy has died and this
3: um, comet appears in the sky. Mm. And and that was also the year he died. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 1577. I just thought
4: that's so fortuitous. I have to
3: do something with it. It's not quite a life from 1570 to 1577 that we don't know about except you have filled in so many... Gaps with some wonderful, wonderful information and and fantasies and and uh, it just it really immerses one in the in that whole world at the time and I think that's terrific and and I thank you for for bringing this to us for entertainment and those of you who for whom Bartolomeo Scappi was not a familiar name well now you can <laughs> find out everything that was not about him <laughs> but, but is made up and and then and not anything that detracts from his his person is a, a legacy to the world of food. Um, great research. I can't wait to see what comes up next. I know you are working on something. In fact, relevant to this book, were you not working on sort of a modern-day cookbook of Scappi's recipes, or is that something you're just toying with at this stage?
4: I actually have um, a digital um, cookbook that is um, I worked with food historians I worked with chefs um, and food bloggers and developed there's 27 recipes in it um, for the modern cook but they're from these 1500 Humbers, year old yeah. recipes yeah. Or, or 500 year old recipes I should say and um, 500, yeah. <laughs> it, now, can
3: people find this out at your website?
4: Yes, if you go to crystalking.com. Um, and uh, I think I actually need to make it live for everybody, but I will do that within okay. a, a very short period of time.
3: All right, well, thank you so much. Again, the name of the book is The Chef's Secret, and the author, my guest, Crystal King. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past.
0: A Taste of the
4: Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash
2: heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.